0: Awesome. Thank you. Um, as you just said, Steve Blunt, I've had the pleasure of working with him for several years in many different uh, church settings. Um, so, Steve currently is at, um, I want to say, River Valley uh, yes. with Rob Ketterling. Yeah. Uh, Steve's background was in publishing, so if you ever want to write a book, he's the right guy to talk to as well. <laughs> but um, I want to say that was with LifeWay. So, uh, anyway, um, a little bit about me. Um I um, had the pleasure of um, going through a halftime experience with Bob Buford. Anyone familiar with Bob Buford? So I um, kind of took my, a business acumen, if you will, and, and wanted to apply it towards a, a church uh, business, for lack of a better word. And so um, it was during that stage where I was uh, kind of a key layperson at a church I attended in Reno, Nevada, <laughs> out west. Anyone out west? I'm like the lone person from from the West Coast, (laughs) but anyway, um, a small Southern Baptist church meets in a high school, and so we had an opportunity to purchase some land, and it was through that journey that I really got immersed into all things uh, church, church giving, that sort of thing, and so Mortarstone is is the brainchild of that in the sense that we wanted to show church leaders what their data says about them, both operationally as well as in the uh, through the lens of, of giving what it says about them with respect to their discipleship processes as well. And so, um, I am not a pastor. <clears throat> I, um, one day aspire to be one someday. Um, I'm not a professional speaker either. So I get extremely nervous. And so if I fumble a little bit, I apologize, but this is a little bit out of my element, um, talking to you guys. So let's jump in. Um, and <clears throat> for the most part, um, by the way, if you want a copy of the slide deck uh, or to be entered into a drawing, uh, we'll have a slide at the end that you can text um, data to and you can be entered into that. But um, we're going to be talking to ba- today about uh, basically how do you assess your giving environment? How do you start to frame that with uh, stewardship and generosity culture? And then how do you start to create some implementation around that? And so... Um, What we know unequivocally is pastors don't want to engage with giving records. Would you all agree with that? (laughs) Yeah, it's um, in fact, a short story when we started out. We were trying to get us a, a, a lot of churches to give us their giving records so that we could start to model this. And they said, no, we're not going to do that. <laughs> um, those are under lock and key and only Myrtle knows, you know, <laughs> that information. And so, so I get the culture, if you will, with the challenges as well as the opportunities with how to connect with people with giving data. Um, And so, that's why it's important that um, when you start to think through this, it's important that we kind of reflect back into it from a pastor's perspective. And so, uh, Steve has the benefit of working in that seat as an executive pastor, working with campus pastors, that sort of thing. And so, we're just going to kind of bounce off of each other as we start to dialogue through this whole process, so. Um, Who likes art? Show of hands. That right there is your church's data spread out through various giving thresholds, and so we've articulated some giving bands. And giving bands are nothing more than a way to to bucket people's giving around certain dollar amounts. That top right bucket is what we call the lapsed bucket. Anyone here over the back door? Yeah. So. Uh, when you start to look at that, um, it looks like a sea of numbers, but we're going to start to unpack that in the presentation. But what you really want to focus on is that bottom tier, which is typically around six, seven, eight percent of your church, but 50, 55 percent of your giving. And so therein lies what I would like to say is the risk and the opportunity is you start to reach out to your people around giving. <clears throat> giving data access. So, know your cultural norms. Um, as we just said, pastors don't want to know what people give, but somebody needs to know. So, as you start to think through this, uh, Steve, when you sit in that pastor seat, executive pastor seat, uh, you connect with campus pastors. Um, when you kind of debrief with Rob Ketterling, How do you kind of start to break this topic, broach the topic around, hey, we're going to empower you, we're going to give you this data, but we expect you to
1: do fill in the blank? Well, the challenge is that you've got so many people in the church, it's really difficult to know who's there and who's not on any given Sunday, and particularly with the changing practice in churches where attendance is less and less frequent. Uh, When I was growing up, um, you know, living at home, um, to be a frequent um, church attender, you were in church at least every week, if not two or three times a week. And now, uh, a frequent church attender, as described by Barna, is someone who attends one point, um, things one point three times a month. And, you know, the challenges that that creates is that when you don't have, the, you know, seeing a, a same person every week, uh, if they start coming less frequently, it's it's more of a challenge to know. Were they there or not? So by being being able to look at the giving records and seeing the frequency that they're making a donation to your church, it's just another way of being able to leverage data to help you as the pastor uh, or your team at your at your church to know who's who's there on a frequent basis and who's not. So as there's a change in that giving behavior, whether it's a decrease in frequency or a decrease in amount or an increase. It's, it's an opportunity to have a ministry discussion with them. What's going on in their life? Is, is there something happening in their world that um, is maybe a prayer concern? So it's, it's a great way of being able to help the leadership of the church to have another touch point to know who to follow up with.
0: Yeah. Um, and on that note, there's probably a couple of documents that you guys should be thinking through if you don't already having, uh, have them, and that would be a giving policy. In other words, who has access to this information? And then um, as you start to process through developing the culture of generosity, and sometimes I get a little burnout because I think sometimes that becomes a buzzword without really an application or strategy behind that. But you should also have um, kind of a staff and or elder giving policy for setting some expectations. And so as you start to think through how are we going to engage with this, with this with this data, we're in essence pulling back the curtain, and so we want to make sure everyone's on the same page, do we do it? And that doesn't mean that necessarily people have access to it, rather it becomes more of an intentional strategy at the church. So, two two important policies, a, a giving access data policy as well as a um, um, what's the expectation in this area, um, especially as it, as it starts to frame up around a spiritual discipline. So <clears throat> um, slicing the database, uh, we like to think of it as there is um, basically four key segments that you're going to want to understand as you start to slice into this. And so kind of the cool thing with data is uh, anyone with uh, access to Excel or um, understands pivot tables or, um, you know, Slide rule. (laughs) You you don't have to be a a genius or be a subscriber of our software to, to get this, but we would encourage you to start to understand it. So there are four segments that we're going to talk about. New givers, core givers, top givers. Uh, Definitions are important. And so as you start to engage with people, thank you for your generosity. Thank you for your gift. You want to make sure that you um, are have articulated that well. In other words, if someone gave to an event, they are not a first time giver. If someone gave to a designated bucket, they might not be a first-time giver. But somebody who gives to the general operating fund, then obviously there should be some type of a recognition of that. Steve, do you have a strategy in
1: place at River Valley in this area? We're completely rethinking that, uh, and in part because of some of the insights that we've gained from looking at Mortarstone. Uh, you know, River Valley, we, we feel like we're a successful church. We've had... Uh, about a 12% increase in general tithe and offering uh, year over year for the past couple of years. And we were feeling pretty good about that. Uh, But, you know, anytime you you start looking at your your data at a more granular level, there are always some revelations. And for us, as we started looking at Mortarstone, we realized that we had a 37% churn. So when we look at the people that um, gave during the year ending March 31st, 2017, and compared that to the people that were giving to the church for the 12 months uh, ending March 31st, 2018, we saw that we had 37% of those people that gave in that first year that gave nothing at all in the most recent um, year of ending March 31st, and that was a shock to us. We had no idea that the back door was open that wide, and so it helped us to to feel, on the (coughs) one hand, good that we were getting a lot of new people coming in who were giving, but if we could just close that back door by a third or a fourth, you know, how much more productive that way. and why were they leading? That's, that was the other thing. It's, it's not just about you know the money, but the money being a representation of where they're at with their heart. So, what can we learn about the people who um, are giving less this year than they did last year, or who stopped giving? If they moved out of the area, that was that was one thing, and we, we would try to pull those people out of the mix. Uh, but for the people that still live in our area and are choosing not to come to the church, or are coming but are giving less or giving nothing at all, we'd like to know why. Is it something that um, an unmet expectation on their part? Uh, is there something happening in their life that we need to be you know, better at serving their needs? So it just it opened a lot of doors for questions for us to, to ask about.
0: Yeah. So um, new givers, again, no prior giving history, core givers, and we're going to define core givers as those that give over a minimum or a certain minimum. So $200 is a good benchmark. And so if you look at $200 and up, that's going to really roughly constitute 97% or more of your total givers from a percentage standpoint. So just establishing a minimum benchmark weeds out a lot of that noise as well as obviously shows you the opportunity. Top givers, again, um, that was that uh, bottom segment, that band five segment. Um, We're going to talk a little bit about that later, but um, by and large, you want to understand not only who's emerging as a top giver, but um, who's in that bucket, and then if you've ever done a capital campaign, that's typically where you go first, and that's typically what breeds uh, donor fatigue, for lack of a better word. And so, as you start to think through funding strategies, I would encourage you to think about a holistic stewardship ministry versus just tapping your top donors for gifts, In nonprofit space versus the church, even though they're both nonprofits, there's the cliche fundraising versus faith raising. And so as we crisscross America, we have um, just under 1,500 churches. We track about $15 billion in giving. So we got a lot of insight into this. And what we have seen is kind of, in my mind, a, a, a huge discipleship issue happening where the church is becoming more and more reliant on a few people. Um, and and we'll get into some of some of the theology pieces of this of how to break that cycle, but that's a challenge. And so as you think about it, that graph on the right um, is going to kind of segment new givers, core givers, top givers, and then that that brand, the band that goes around that is going to be a segment that we call asset givers, which is typically delineated by an age characteristic. Have you, um, if you've been following church funding, we all know that there's going to be a massive wealth transfer in the United States, like one we've never seen. Numbers of 35, upwards of $40 trillion is going to be transferring generationally. We know that our good friend, the IRS, has 80,000 plus pages of tax code to make sure they understand what their fair portion is. And so you need to be aware of how an age-appropriate demographic is being faced with these challenges as they uh, start to age out, if you will. Um, it's kind of a sad story. We work with some mainline churches, inner city, been around for 150 years And it's like they've lost their way because you can technically see the decline year over year in their giving, and they're solely dependent upon an older demographic. So the cool thing with being at ARC is you guys are young. (laughs) You guys have kind of a a clean slate, if you will, to kind of draft it wherever you want to go and kind of imprint your ethos and your people with what you want in this area. So that's kind of cool. So uh, key performance metrics, um, we're going to talk a little bit about things that you should be measuring. And so as we've talked through those segments, the new givers, core givers, top givers, and then age-appropriate givers, we also want to layer in the, the metrics around those. And so on the left, you have segments. On the right, you have KPMs, or key performance metrics. So acquisition, those that are um, were, were, are being added to the proverbial bucket, each appropriate bucket as well as um, who's increasing versus decreasing their giving and what does that retention look like. And so this is not rocket science, but it's something that should start to uh, make its way to a dashboard um, so that it's effectively being managed. Giving tells a story, as uh, Steve was alluding to. Um, He was a little bit concerned with the fact that About a third of his people were giving and they flush out the back door. What does that say? What does that start to tell you about the church operationally? In other words, if you're able to get a first-time giver, but they don't make a second-time gift, what does that say about your assimilation processes? Do you even have an understanding of what that ratio looks like of those that made a first gift but not a second gift? So, uh, it's not uncommon for a church to have a thank you strategy to engage with a first-time giver, but it becomes almost a more uh, important strategy to have a follow-on to that that says, hey, we appreciate your giving, but you haven't made a second gift. You haven't signed up for fill-in-the-blank. What are you doing? So, that strategy has to be paramount with with what you're doing in in respect to uh, connecting with those first-time givers as well.
1: There's also a, a, a chart that's in the mortar stone system that we found particularly helpful, and it actually shows um, the each month as kind of a separate uh, group of, of people who, you know, people that started giving in a particular month, and it tracks, do they continue giving for the future? And what it helped us to be able to see is that when we have new people becoming a part of our church in January, for example, there's a lot stickiness there. They, they tend to continue giving and giving strong because they're usually hearing about our vision message very early in the year, and they're getting plugged in to new programs that are gearing up in, in the you know start of the new year. Same thing happens in the fall, but by the same token, people that join us um, in the summer when sometimes ministry programs tend to slow down or small groups aren't meeting as regularly— uh, we've, we see that the runoff of those people is much more rapid. The, the attrition of those people is much more rapid because we're not getting them plugged into small groups. And so um, there, there are tools and features within Mortarstone that just give us greater insight. Uh, what kind of uh, church management systems are you using? Are you, how many of you are on Arena or Fellowship One? How about ACS? Rock. I've been on all of them. (laughs) Not at the same church, but over different churches at different times. And the thing that I like about Mortarstone is that it sits on top of those application systems, those management systems. And once you kind of learn how to navigate your way through the mortarstone um, r- reports, it just becomes so very intuitive to be able to continue that as you may transition to a different CMS in the future. <clears throat> and so all of the, the data that we're talking about here, it's in your CMS already, but it's it resides as data. And one thing that Mortarstone does is it aggregates that information and really helps convert the data to information, to actionable insights. And that's where the value really comes. When you can start spending your time, not so much just generating the reports, but having the reports created for you. And now you can spend your time figuring out, how do I apply this to my ministry? How how does looking at this report change what I'm gonna do on Monday morning at 10 o'clock when I'm meeting with my campus pastors? Or how does it inform the decisions that need to be made? So that's the, that's the value of a tool like this.
0: Um so knowing your data obviously um if i had to say what's your retention rate of your givers how many people know that right now what is it first time givers across the board if you look at all givers all right that's okay but it's awesome that you know the first time givers though <laughs> yeah that's good yeah well just a tidbit first time givers are the most at risk segment of your constituency right and so, especially if you're trying to attract the unchurched, right? It's not a normal to have high churn, if you will. Now, churn's not in a very efficient way to grow, but depending on your objective, where you're positioned in the ministry, it might be perfectly acceptable. That's low. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, that would be an element of cohort analysis, what what, what Steve was talking through, whereas What's the common denominator? If someone comes in and starts giving in January, what do they look like in February, March, and then where do you start losing them? Typically, what we have found is month three and four is your highest attrition. So if you're not getting them connected to the vision, to the mission, serving small groups, et cetera, et cetera, right? That's where you have that at-risk element. Kudos for knowing that number, though. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> So, um, and if you think about it, retention is nothing more than a proxy, right? It's just a proxy of your assimilation processes, right? So, if you can't get a second-time gift from the people, then there's a, there's a gap, there's a miss. So, um, we talked about acquisition and retention. Now, we're talking about giving increases versus decreases, um, another leading question. Um, how many people are increasing versus decreasing their giving in the congregation? <clears throat> On average, you're going to see roughly, uh, in this church, 52% are staying at the same level of giving. And then you're going to see a certain portion of them increase versus decrease. So. So what you want to do basically is start to uh, create discipleship pathways for those that might be struggling. Um, oftentimes that might be curriculum based. In other words, have you done financial peace university? Right? Have you put people through that? Um, uh, what's your discipleship process look like in the area of stewardship and generosity? How healthy are they? There's a couple of challenges that, 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 that become common with most of the low-level givers in the church. There's two reasons that are holding them back. It's either going to be theology or capacity. So it's not that they don't want to give. They can't give. <laughs> they don't have the margin to give. So uh, break it down to where you know um, who's increasing or staying the same, who's lagging, and who's coming up short. <clears throat> These become metrics that were worth measuring as you start to like set sail and then start to see a, a project on the horizon, the logical thing to do is fundraise it. But yet if you have the vast majority of your people decreasing their giving, then you got other, other issues that need to shore up. Giving band distributions. And so um, once we understand who's a new giver, a core giver, a top giver, if you will, we're going to break them into giving bands. This is just an example um, of what you can do. Um, low level givers would be those that are giving in band one, zero to $200. And then 200 to 1,000, 1,000 to five, 5 to 10, and so on and so forth. And so that just gives you granularity into your constituency. It basically allows you to understand the composition of your income if you think about it in a business sense. Band one and two represents roughly fifty percent or more of your church, but only about six percent of your giving. Does that? How does that hit you guys? By the way, risky problem. Yeah, all of the above, right? Um, depending on how you're looking at it, half full or half empty. If it's uh, if your needs are being met. Um, then might be a risk standpoint. If your needs are not being met, maybe it's an opportunity, right? Band five represents about 6% of your church, but it's approximately 45% or so of your giving. The immediate question to that, is that okay? Is that okay with you? Um. And so we can now just tee this question up to Steve over here because this is River Valley. Steve, is this okay that roughly 60% of your church gives less than, I don't know, $500 a year to the church?
1: It, it's really not. And, and actually, as I look at this, I, I even think about it a little bit differently because in our church, we have 6,140 households who give at any level but we, our average weekend attendance is about 10,000 people. And when you think about um, how frequently people are attending church, we're really reaching about 30,000 people. So, And when you look at average household size in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, we actually are reaching about double this number of households. So for the 6,140 households that give at any level, We also have, interestingly, about 6,140 households that give absolutely nothing at all. And so, as you look at the um, percent of households, you see that this, you know, in Tier Five, this chart is showing 8% give, 8% of the households give 53% of the budget, but it's really half this number. So, really, 4% of the households give over half of our budget. And for any of you that have ever filled out applications for a church loan, one of the questions they usually ask is, what percentage of your giving do your top 10 donors contribute? And because they're looking for concentration risk. And, you know, what should happen to your church if one or two of those families moves out of the area or decides they didn't like last week's sermon (laughs) or, you know, whatever may happen? And that just helps you to see a level of, of exposure that you may have. And likewise, when you look at kind of the bottom tiers to see the, the large number of people that contribute you know, less than 1%. In our, our case, we've got um, 18% of our households contribute less than 1% when you factor in that there's 50% of the households that give nothing at all. And so when our senior pastor gets complaints from people saying, you talk too much about money. And I'm thinking, really? Um, I think the 4% of our people that give over half the budget wish other people would hear about it a little bit more and step up to the plate and carry their fair share. Um, You think about how many times money is mentioned in the New Testament. And so how much is, is too much? And so it's helped our senior pastor when he sees something like this, then he's taking with a little more grain of salt when he hears people anecdotally saying, you talk too much about money. And um, to me, it needs, it needs to kind of represent a condition of the heart and, and why we're, you know, looking at the information this way. Um, that's just, that becomes so critically important.
0: Yeah. Um, and on that note, <laughs> when we first started the company about seven years ago, we never coached churches, um, largely because we came at it as an entrepreneur trying to solve a church problem. And so, really what we did is we served up some great data without a lot of strategy behind it. And so, now we actually coach churches um, in this area of saying, hey, what does it look like to build out a holistic stewardship ministry? You know, how do you start to weave that into the DNA of who you guys are culturally? And so, when you do talk about it, it's not like an appendage. Rather, it's just part of the norm. And then, obviously, you can start to measure the effects of that as well. So, obviously, green and red, there's your opportunity and there's your risk. There's that um, earlier depiction. And so, this is, again, River Valley, about 1,996 band one givers um, in this segment. Um, Call it 2,000 two of those people made it into bucket five which is your top
1: giver only two so let me give a little context the on the left this is at the start of the year um, correct mm-hmm. and so as you as you go through the year how many of band one stayed in band one how many of them increase their giving and move to band two so band one is zero to two hundred dollars band two is two hundred to five hundred dollars. So you it's you know highly unlikely you have people that start at the lowest band and move up to the highest one, unless maybe they started uh at late in the in the year and were only giving, you know, a small, you know, a short period of time, but they were giving at a fairly significant level. But this helps to see that movement of people f- from the different levels of giving, whether they're going up and then contra- conversely, there's another view that shows you know, people that started out the year giving at a significant level, but during the course of the year, they kind of downgraded based on their level of giving to a lower band.
0: As a church planter, what you want to do is poach people who are churched <laughs> to put them in the band five. I'm being somewhat silly here, but there is a process to onboard a new person to give, right? Right. And it usually takes anywhere from three to six months. So if you have the blessing of picking up a, a person in your church, if you're a younger church, um, somebody that already gives at that level, then it's a huge, huge plus. I haven't shared this story with Steve yet, but I'm going to. So last week I was in Minneapolis in a small church, seven-year-old church, and they had an opportunity to purchase a building And they didn't have the resources. Uh, they needed roughly $4 million. They didn't have a down payment. This is a church with about a $1.2 million budget. This is the funny part of the story, though. One of River Valley's donors gave them a million dollars to get the loan for the church. I bet Steve would want to probably know who that person was to say, hey, <laughs> what's going on? <laughs> and I'm being a little facetious, um, but it's kind of a cool story. It's a God story, really, because it's like they had this opportunity. They were under-resourced. They weren't even really planned for it. And then they were connected with somebody who was already a generous giver to the church. It just happened they didn't go to that church but there was in the community and this was a very much a community minded person. And you know them, I'll, I'll share the story, the name later, but, but it's kind of a cool story. And so when you see these types of things, it's like, Hey, are we actually resourced? Right. Are we thinking through this? Right. Are we measuring the right things so that when opportunity does come up, that we can actually jump on it. So that's kind of a cool depiction of, of, kind of the the retrospect, band one, band two, all the way up to band five, that bucket, the red bucket on the right is kind of where they progress for the year. Are they staying engaged? Are they lapsing? Now, we know that giving is just one indicator of engagement, for lack of a better word. You can have attendance, um, small group engagement, leading, serving, volunteering, all those sort of things kind of come into play. But we The the, the one thing that we focus on is the one thing that we know is very tangible, it's very objective. And so giving happens to be one of those things that either it's there or it's not, right? So it's like when you start to really peel it back and say, hey, if I need to make some decisions... On this, I want to make sure I'm making the right decisions. And so, giving just gives you a very objective format. So, it's not the only format. And so, you can weave in additional elements to start to help draw in an, an affinity or, or a profile, for lack of a better word. But we kind of default to that because we know it's very subjective or objective. All right. So, um, enough about data. Let's talk a little bit about Bible and money. <laughs> and so… Um, by and large, uh, what does the Bible say about money? And Steve alluded to this um, a lot. It's a hard issue, right? When you kind of peel it back, and if we're in the business to, to disciple people, then what does these giving trends suggest about our ability to disciple people in the area of money? <clears throat> so, as we start to peel this back, there's three elements, um, lordship, stewardship, and generosity. So what's our part and what's God's part? That's the lordship piece, right? Um, as we start to process through um, the stewardship and the generosity part, we, we often uh, refer to this as there's two sides to the coin, if you will, right? There's stewardship, and then there's generosity, which is um, the, the management piece, and then kind of how are we going to manage these assets that we've been entrusted to. The stewardship piece, um, the first mention of stewardship in the Bible, anyone know where that's at? Genesis Genesis 1.26 that I've been able to ascertain, and that's where we are um, a ruler over everything, if you will. So, that's kind of a first mention um, of stewardship in the Bible. Um, why should the church teach on money? Seems like a logical thing, right? Why should the church teach all money? We think of it as one of the most um, spiritual, sharp spiritual elements of of cutting to the discipleship discussion, right? You know, your treasure, where your heart is, where your treasure is, or your heart is also, right? And so, when you think about money and time, those are the two things that we prize the most. And so, when you look at the reality of a church that runs, say, 15,000 20,000 whatever those numbers are in nine locations yet 60% of the church prioritizes their phone bill higher than the cause of Christ that's an issue and that's that, that's the norm that's not a uh that's not a negative on River Valley because River Valley represents the norm not not an outlier if you will not amazing <laughs> they're not an outlier they're a big church but they're not an outlier stewardship and generosity. Okay, what do we want for people in this area? So there's there's um, kind of seven things that we've kind of been able to ascertain in the area of stewardship and generosity. And so, um, and, and this is kind of cool too, as you think through this, uh, we were teaching this the other day and I thought, thought about this just for a second. I'm like, m- minus the very first one, a Christ-centered worldview, those six things, whether you're a a, a a Christ follower or not, that's just things we want in our life, right? A generosity, margins, being a saver, living debt free, living on a budget, being a life steward, right? Those seven elements, minus the Christ centered worldview, if you will, those are just things that are we want for our people, <laughs> right? This is not something that is out of the norm. But yet, when we think about it, we don't really want to approach the topic of money. We don't know how to approach the topic of money. But yet, when we look at it, there's a drought, if you will, in our church. So, um, what do we want for our people? We want a Christ-centered worldview. Um, Pretty simple. How is your ministry creating a Christ-centered worldview? These are something that we should think about. Uh, Generosity. Do you truly believe the scripture? And how is your ministry teaching descriptor scripture in this area. Um, do you guys do an annual sermon series on stewardship and generosity?
1: How do you follow that up? Steve, what do you guys do over at River Valley? We do a series uh, usually in February of each year, um, a couple of weeks after we do our vision message for the for the year to teach on it, because we feel like once people have an understanding of the vision of where the church is going, that's the time to cast vision for what their role is. And if and once they understand what it is we're trying to do in the community <laughs> and in, around the world, they're more inspired to want to be a part of it. And once they understand their role in it, we found that they're more likely to um, start signing up to be a tither or to increase their level of giving. That's just a good uh, timing factor for us. We also do Financial Peace University uh, all throughout the year because we want to make sure that um, we're providing some practical help to those families who want to be generous but just can't figure out how to be because of, of debt or because they're, they know they've got to be saving for a house or a car or a placement car. Uh, in their future. And so to give them those kind of practical tools, what we found is that people that go through Financial Peace University generally increase their giving to the church uh, by low double digits within six months of completing FPU. So that helps us to better understand how much should we be willing to subsidize the cost of that Financial Peace University kit to get families into it because we know that it helps them meet a practical need in their life, but also we know that that comes back to us as as a church. Yeah, um,
0: margin. How many people need margin in their life? <laughs> yeah, it seems like we're all too busy, and and so um, a life with margin attracts, you know, too much capacity overload if you will and so I know um, as a type a type personality I tend to get overwhelmed with things I don't have time for people um, because I don't have any margin in my life so margin creates peace uh, um, helps us be able to be better stewards with our time if you will you know how many people have volunteer burnout is because you don't have enough people with living on margin right so you you, you go to that proverbial Pareto principle, the 20% do 80% of the work, right? And so, um, we want margin for our people in, in this area. We want them to be savers. You know, how many people statistically, if you were to not get your next paycheck, what would that do for you? We, we know uh, unequivocally by way of uh, the government shutdown that creates chaos, right? <laughs> We've seen it firsthand play out in the news channels. So, people um, don't have margin. They don't have savings. Um, We want people to be debt-free. You know, how many churches have debt? Show of hands. Yeah. Do we have a plan to get out of that debt? Some of you are probably trying to get into debt, (laughs) which is totally cool, too. There's a season for everything. But have a plan to get out of debt, share that plan, and then be consistent with what you want for your people in that area, too. Does River Valley have debt? I don't think I've ever asked you. We do.
1: You do? Yes. hmm
0: Yeah. And and I think, um, you know, that's, if you're a growing, thriving ministry, Church of the Highlands is the exception on this. Um, you know, when you have excess margin, when you're running, you know, 65% is what you need then you're in a a pretty good luxury position. But um, most churches that we see have debt and and they're in that perpetual cycle of growing, needing capital to to grow, but then being constrained by facilities or fill in the blank. Budgeting. We want people to live on a spending plan. How many households do you think don't live on a budget? (laughs) Yeah, the vast majority. And so if you were to do an exercise, because as church leaders, and I didn't, uh, survey the room, but how many of you in here are teaching pastors versus business pastors? Business pastors? And the other ones are teaching pastors or some other aspect of it? Yeah. Um, I'm sorry to put you guys to sleep, but, um, the reality is, is, is we run a church on a budget, but yet households don't run on a budget. And so what happens is, is tithing, which whether you subscribe to the tithe or grace-based theology, tithing is around 2.5% to the church. You know, that's kind of across the board. And so, the reason is, is because it's, there's not, it's not a priority. People don't live on a budget. They don't prioritize it. And as a consequence, the church gets the leftovers. So, budgeting, having a spending plan, it's something that we should want for all of our people. And then being life stewards, um, using your gifts and talents in the kingdom. Um, so how are you going to, you know, impress that on people, if they're living paycheck to paycheck, they're running the kids to the soccer practice or fill in the blank, right? No margin, all those sort of things need to layer in. So the exercise that we would teach you as a pastor is to kind of sit down and consecrate what you want for people in the area of stewardship and generosity And, and, and let that be your guiding light as you start to kind of craft your strategy, build out your ministry, that sort of thing in this area. Um, So, how do we implement all this? We have, we touched the tip of the iceberg with metrics. We kind of touched the tip of the iceberg of the theology pieces, but how do you implement all this? Well, first off, you're going to have to do this with lay people. (laughs) You can't do it with, quote-unquote, just staff. And so um, a great strategy to connect with first-time givers might be using your welcome team. So it it doesn't have to be about a dollar amount. They don't need to see that. They just have to have the indicator. You have to have it scripted out to say, hey, thank you for your generosity, kind of cast vision. You need to show people that you're transparent. Um, That's really important when you think about it.
1: Laps Givers, go ahead. One thing we like about the Mortarstone tool is that uh, myself and, and one person that works in my office are the ones who have access to it. We can generate reports for people at the campus level that let them know who needs to be followed up with without letting them know why they're on the list and that's that's very important because you don't want to share more information than is necessary but it's just important for someone at the at the campus level to know here are the 10 people we want you to connect with this week and to have a you know a conversation with them about what's going on in their life and they don't know whether that person was a first time giver or maybe the first time they checked their child in or in any other <laughs> metric that we've identified was the need for you know, prompting some follow-up. So that, again, when you think about, you know, wanting to preserve the fact that Myrtle's the only one who has the giving information, you can do that with a tool like this, because the administrative um, setup of it allows you to um, share as much information as you want with people in your church or as little, but still have the benefit of understanding some of these overall trends and insights.
0: Yeah. Again, not breaking that cultural norm of what, um, you want to be able to put in people's hands, if you will. So, um, first time givers, lapse givers, uh, connect them with the prayer team, pastoral care team, that sort of thing. If you think about it, um, there's not a lot of things that allows the church to be proactive in a pastoral care setting. In other words, when someone goes through a tough time, they got to raise their hand and say, I need help. And so, if you have a strategy in place to connect with somebody that was giving it stopped, and we've got some great stories on this where it's like someone lost a job, someone was going through a divorce, fill in the blank, right? Uh, health issues. And so, the church was able to be the church just because they were attentive to those signals. They saw the increases, the decreases, the lapses, and they had a strategy in place to do something with that. And so, um, it would be our heart not to, not to braid somebody for lack of a better word with, where's your money? Rather, it's like, Hey, what can we be praying for you for? What's going on in your life? How can we come alongside you and be the church? So giving happens to be one of those things as, as a, a very objective indicator of something that's going on in someone's life. And so when you start tracking it and queuing in on it, then you can be more proactive in that area. And, as uh Steve mentioned, roughly a third of the church flushes out the back door every year. So think about if that was decreased to ten or fifteen percent, what the massive growth would be right? and then look at the amount of people that you that are giving a low level if you could move those up what, what's the opportunity right there? So lapse givers and then top givers um how are you connecting with your top givers? How are you teaching? Uh, you're teaching pastor, executive pastor, stewardship pastors. How many people have a stewardship pastor? It's awesome. Yeah. Three or four or five. Yeah. We'd want to see everyone raise their hand in this area. <laughs> um, and not to be too pragmatic about the money piece of this, but when you think about an investment in your ministry, a stewardship pastor would more than pay for itself in this area. Uh, Most of the large churches, we work with about 40 or so of the top 100 churches in America. And across that band, all 40 of those guys have stewardship pastors. And so, if you think about it, consumerism is running rampant in our culture. If you go back 30, 40 years, churches didn't really have children's pastors because churches weren't that big or family life pastors. But today, when you grow a church, especially in a megachurch environment, we're in a different culture. And you got to put consumerism in check. You got to get people on a budget. You got to get them living with margin. Otherwise, the church gets the leftovers. So, um, as we connect with top givers, we want to be sensitive to their needs. Um, Uh, one of the gentlemen that's on our staff, a guy named Gunnar Johnson, used to lead stewardship at Gateway Church, and so he would routinely connect with 150 or so top givers at Gateway. Not once did he ever ask for a dollar, and that church arguably has a $150 million budget. So, casting vision, creating relationship is all you're doing as a stewardship pastor when you're connecting with your top people. You're creating a relationship because a lot of times those guys don't have a relationship. That's it. Woohoo! <laughs> I know this is dry as toast. I mean, no one gets into church to be a data analysis, right? So, yeah, I thank you for your attention. Um, there is a uh, – we'll go ahead and uh, text data to 65047. 65047, we'll give you the PowerPoint slide deck, and we can enter you into a a promo. So I'll open this up now for Q&A, if you guys have questions. Great question. Great, And I'll repeat it just for the benefit of the recording. But what band do you focus on first? And I like to tell people that the the low-lying fruit, if you will, is is the new givers and the lapse givers. So... The heavy lift is focusing on band movement, and that should really layer in with a stewardship ministry with a holistic plan. So, if you just focus on new givers, new giver conversion from first time to second time, um, and I tell people this all the time, don't make the mistake of asking a first-time giver to give a recurring gift. Just appreciate them. Let them know you're thankful for their giving, their generosity. Show them a video. Have your pastor do a video. For them, a two-minute video, send it to them as an email. Hey, this is where we're at. Thanks for joining us. If you have uh, any uh, third-party endorsements like ECFA, if you've audited financials, if you're going to go in for financing, you're going to have to have audited financials. Anything that you can kind of put up there to create transparency is a huge plus for first-time givers. So th- the question is, 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 what's the best way to Reach out to somebody that you've identified with having a giving change, whether that be a decrease or a lapse
1: altogether. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, Steve, I'll let you run with that. Yeah, our approach is just to find out what's happening in their life, and we never ask them directly, we notice your giving is down. You know, that's just, we just don't do that. You know, we what we want to do is to let them know the great things that the church is involved in. And if that inspires them to feel led by God, to increase their generosity, that's great. If they choose not to, that's between them and God. And, um, you know, when it comes to, the, to generosity, we really try to encourage people to do that um, in our community, with their time and with their money, and and not that it's all going towards causes at the church. We have this this program called Kingdom Builders, where we raise about um, one third. When you look at our general operating budget, we raise about a third of that more that's given to causes beyond the church. And we encourage and celebrate when people do that because we feel like that's what God calls us to do. He's not calling us just to grow our church. He's, causing, he's calling us to be a steward of our community. And so we actually celebrate when we have people in our church that, that give to causes that help the community because we, we have to kind of band together. I know here in, in Birmingham, we're in the Bible Belt. I grew up in the Bible Belt. Minneapolis is not the Bible belt. And, and I don't know if you had a chance to hear Rob Ketterling earlier, but um, we actually have had communities where we've tried to plant a church where, where local government has said, we don't want you here. We will fight you coming in here because you're taking property off the tax rolls. And for, for us, we feel like that's an indictment that we've not been better at helping the communities to understand the, the value that we bring to them when we're there in the community. And so we feel like we've got to work a little bit harder. So anytime we can encourage participation and support from all the the churches in our community, as long as they're a Bible-believing church, we'll work with anyone else, whether they're Lutheran or or Catholic or Baptist or Presbyterian. If they're Bible-believing, we want to partner with them because we know that when we look at all of our churches in the Twin Cities area, we don't have enough seats for every lost person in Minneapolis to be in church, so we can't take the position that we we only want to build it for us. We want to help, you know, reach our city for Christ. So that's
0: awesome. Um, yesterday, a friend of mine drove up from or drove down, I should say, from Knoxville. Um, a guy named Dr. Josh Whitehead at Faith Promise Church in Knoxville. Awesome church, by the way. Um, but we were talking in. And he he was sharing with me a story that he um, connected with somebody last week um, who was giving it stopped. Someone gave faithfully $30,000 a year to the church. And he called straight up. He just said, hey, I would be doing you a disservice if I didn't say I was monitoring this. What's going on in your life? And he just hit it head on. He was able to do that because he had a relationship with the guy he had he had a friendship he had deep connection with them and he was able to call him on and say tell me what's going on and and so it wasn't awkward so that's why we would encourage you to connect with your people so that there was when there is something going on that you can actually disciple them without it being wonky for lack of a better word you had a follow on question too so this may- Yeah, and and that. So, how do you minister to people if we are uh, arguably going through one of the biggest economic booms our country's seen for a long time? Right, is what you're describing. So, if we're in an economic boom and we have people living without margin, what do we expect if if we have a downturn? So, and that's an excellent question. Um, if you were to study philanthropic giving across the board you would notice that giving to the church is on a multi-year decline, multi-decade decline, excuse me. So as a percentage of philanthropic dollars, I think the last year was about $410 billion. That's the landscape that we're in, by the way. $410 billion of giving, not philanthropic giving. Um, Roughly 31% of that made its way to religious organizations. Um, 40 years ago, that was about 52%. So, just to put it in context, although giving continues to increase, as a percentage of total philanthropic giving, it's going down. So, to circle back to what happens in a tough economic season, well, if you prepare your people right, it's going to be less of a downturn. So, how many people went through 07 or 08, 09, 010, right? You went from the the best of years in 06, hopefully you didn't buy a building then, to 2010 when people were losing houses, so, um, if you teach people, if you sit on bent knee and pray, what do you want God for me to teach my people in this area of stewardship and generosity, those seven things I listed? Got to get that becomes your ethos of who you guys are. We want margin, we want capacity, we want savers, we want people living on budget because we are in economic good times, right? And it won't always be that way, it's always a season. So, prep the people. It would be, my guidance. But you do that with your senior pastor, with your governance team, figure out with your leadership team, what do we want for our people in this area and get it out to them?
1: Yeah, most of our churches were good about asking people to give out of their current income or their cash you know, in the bank. We're not so great about being able to help people to understand how to give of stocks and mutual funds or other types of assets. And one of the things that River Valley started doing um, recently was um, working with a brokerage firm that allows us to accept gifts of stock and mutual fund so that the donor gets the full value for their donation. So they're they're not having to pay any capital gains taxes. In the past, they'd have to sell that, pay the capital gains tax, then out of whatever's left over, give that to the church. And now there's a, a vehicle in place where they can give that stock or mutual fund to the church we calculate what the the current value is. They get the full benefit of that for their tax write-off. Um, you know, we we sell it. Same day we receive it, we don't pay any capital gains tax, and that money comes to us, and it's not uncommon. Hardly a week goes by that we don't get a gift of, you know, low five figures, you know, from that source. And it, it's been great for us to realize that. And we, we realize right now we are just feel like we're, barely scratching the surface. There are other other strategies in place for being able to, um, you know, Lifeway Generosity, for example, has just launched a program where they can help, uh, help with any kind of art collection or jewelry or those kinds of things and make sure that your church has a place to go that's a recognized uh, dealer for being able to liquidate those so you're not you know, dealing with someone in in your local community who may not may or may not understand the value of that kind of an asset. So those are some things that I think you would ex- want to explore. And then yeah. Borderstone has some asset giving yeah. um, opportunities as well. Yeah,
0: asset giving is going to be the trend going forward, just because there's a wealth transfer. But I think we reached the end of our uh, session, so I thank you all for your attention and hope it wasn't too too dry. So come on, can we put our hands together for them? tremendous and uh, they do really do an excellent job we've learned so much from River Valley and uh, use mortar stone and so they're gonna be hanging out here I think for a few minutes if you guys have any questions you can uh, can come up and ask them thank you so much.